Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Sarah Bagg from Rework Consulting. We're talking about the procurement process and asking, is it broken? Sarah shares her top tips for both attractions and suppliers entering into a new process. And we also discuss improving long-standing partnerships. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to Skip the Queue. It's lovely to have you here. I know. Thank you for having me. We're going to start with some icebreakers. So I would like to know, um, I like this one. What strange food pairings do you love that nobody else understands? Oh, that's a good one. I don't know. I used to, it's probably not a food pairing anymore, but how you used to live off a budget when you're at uni and the strangest things that you used to have. And, um, I remember when I was really skinned, I used to have a bowl of cook- couscous, because you don't even need to cook that, with um, ketchup and Worcester sauce. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, that is disgusting. It's disgusting. But two, I'm, I'm really, I'm laughing because mine also involves like a grain and ketchup as well. Surely there's five, you, you know, five a day in there somewhere. Ketchup's good for you. Of course mm, it is. Worcester sauce it? is bound to be. Absolutely. A bit of carbs. Um, how gross. So mine is um really similar actually. So it was, you know, the the bags of white rice that you can get that you put in the microwave. Mm-hmm. So one of them, whack it in the microwave, a tin of tuna and ketchup. <laughs> yeah. I mean ketchup makes everything better. <laughs> protein goals. Yeah, it's that it's that no cook thing, isn't it? Like yeah. cook, absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Your head is in that space where oh, this requires absolutely you know, washing up either. Bonus. Yeah, good. Just while we're on the topic of, of things that we eat, what about cold baked beans straight out of the tin? Oh, yes, yes, one. isn't it? Yeah, once when I was again at uni, we went to Prague on a trip and we went on the coach. So it's like a marathon, marathon journey. And loads of us were eating cold baked beans. <laughs> so delicious. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> my, my daughter loves baked beans. So she's a baked bean fiend. But that is the first thing that as soon as that tin's opened, I'm getting a couple of spoons <laughs> of those down. Right, good. Yeah. Learned a lot about each other there, didn't we? We're, we're on the same wavelength, but disgusting food habits. Okay, attractions related. What are you most likely to buy when you exit through the gift shop? I love this question. Oh, I am a massive fan of postcards. Um, not because I send them anymore, because it feels a bit like, and, and I mainly go sort of, um, I would say, if I my choice of visitor attraction would be like a gallery immersive type of um uh, attraction and it always stays in my fridge or I mean it's not just something you, maybe you can frame it and make it into a piece of artwork rather than some tat that's just plastic and yeah that's nice thought you were going to start dissing rubbers then my no. collection Tat-y big fan it. of fridge magnets too but they always have to be like of something that looks nice and tat yeah like um like a model of that if you went to like a historic house a model of the house or something uh-huh. like yeah okay. good postcards yeah i thought about that that is quite a nice uh-huh. one isn't it uh-huh. uh, okay last one what one thing would you make a law that isn't one already well technically it is it's about finding people though my biggest bugbear about anyone in life is dropping litter i can't stand it, it makes me feel I've, i turn into a big old moan moan moany person but i figure it's a good thing to moan about 
Mm-hmm. I, it will be a way of being able to find people and find them on the spot for dropping litter. See, that is a thing, though, isn't it? But who does the on the? There's not who can find them. Who does it? Who does the? Uh-huh. Who does the finding? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, because uh, there's no point in having a law if you can can't implement the law. There's signs all over the um, Brighton seafront saying you'll get fined if you drop litter. But who's the, who's the litter patrol person that's going up and down? There's a job there, isn't there? There's a job there. Good. Okay. Thank you very much. What is your unpopular opinion? Oh, so this might split the room slightly. um, I guess that's the point of an unpopular opinion. It'd probably be unpopular for most marketing professionals and web um, designers. So watch out, Kelly. Absolutely hate pop-ups on websites. Oh, that's okay. I'm with you. Can't stand them. I absolutely hate them. They're like the worst invention. I don't understand why they're still on websites. Like I'm just browsing. I'm like literally been on somebody's site for like barely 15 seconds. And you're asking me whether I want to like subscribe to your newsletter. I'm like, I don't even know anything about your company yet. Why are you asking me to subscribe to your website? Yeah. yeah. So there are there is a there is a good use case for them. I do yeah. I see I hear where you're going. They are annoying. But there is a good use case for them. But I think it's about timing, isn't it? Right? Yeah. It's about time and place again. So not when someone's just come on and browsing. Like, but if they're if they're in your blog, right, and they're invested yeah. in some of the things that you're that you're talking about, then absolutely, that's the time to mm. hit them with a little pop. Definitely, um, you're right. It's about timing rather than enough time to blink. Yeah. Is <laughs> you should there should be some way of it's either certain pages or the time that you've been on. What are really annoying are the pop-up adverts that you get on like local newspaper websites. Have you ever like gone on, there must be like a Brighton local news website. Yeah, the Argos. Oh my God, they just drive me insane. Like you to the point where you just can't read, you can't read the article. No. No, No, I'm not okay with those. There you go. Well, let's see. Listeners, let us know. Pop-ups, no pop-ups. Is Sarah's opinion that unpopular? (laughs) We shall see. Um, Tell me a little bit about your background, Sarah. What? you have done previously and and where that brings you to now so i have spent a um, ridiculous amount of years working in the leisure and hospitality and attractions industry i don't say attractions because it hasn't just been attractions um but i guess before my management career which started probably about when i was 23 i'm 46 now keep on saying 45 for keep forgetting i've added another <laughs> year um i probably spent my all my working life in leisure hospitality and attractions from the age of 15 I was working in green leisure um, which is a theme park in Somerset where I grew up um, from working in the Swan Theatre um, in High Wycombe where I went to uni and then part-time roles in, in Australia when I was um, traveling in the Sydney Maritime Museum um, I managed a hostel over there so I've always been in customer-facing leisure operation roles. And then when I came back um, to the UK after travelling, I moved straight to London. Uh, no offence to Somerset. I still love my home county, but I needed bright lights and excitement of London. And um, I, 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 I guess you could say I honed my management craft and skills um, in the pub business. So I was a really young manager. I... I started working at O'Neill's, which is a whole, I could talk about that for about an hour. We haven't got that time. Um, but kind of by accident. And 
uh, I remember a guy saying to me, look, if you're going to be here, I know you, you, this is a part-time gig, but you may as well get trained in management while you're here. And O'Neill's, for people that don't know it, and the overseas uh, listeners, it's owned by a company called Mitchells and Butler. So it's a big corporation. Um, and they used to have a very good uh, management training program, almost like fast track, you know, learning on the job, but also lots of assessments. And I think four months after I started, I was managing the pub that I took a part-time job in. And it's a massive learning curve, you know, from for managing stock, cash, people, public drinking, massive issue, um, obviously <clears throat> profit, events, you know, you name it, you can learn it in, in the hospitality and pub business. And then after a few years working there, I went to Vinopolis. Again, people might not know it, but it's a wine tasting and events company in London Bridge, London three and a half acre site and I was head of operations there and I looked after about 120 staff my responsibility and that led to me um, getting a role at Chelsea Football Club so I'm for about five and a half years managed the stadium tours and the museum there as well as two capex museum redevelopment projects so yeah that was when did I leave Chelsea Um, 2013 something like that so I spent all of that time in sort of London and that area and then went to sort of the supplier side. So I went to work for the visitor attraction company first. Um, they were opening a series of attractions throughout the country and I, I went in as a, a contractor head of ops for them. And then um, I went to the technical supplier side and worked for a UK ticketing provider. And initially I was doing some business consultancy for them. And then the owner offered me a full-time role that was sort of sales, marketing, customer success. And I was there for about, oh, about seven and a half years and then got promoted to a directorship um, where I helped the owner in a more strategic um, direction of the company in, in terms of develop roadmap and recruitment strategies, et cetera. And that was up until April last year, actually a year. Oh, it's a year. It's your year's Mm -hmm. birthday. Oh, that's exciting. So Sarah and I, we met actually at your time at Tor. I think that's how Mm -hmm. we got talking, didn't we? Because we had a client that was using the system, actually. I think that's that's how the conversation started. But you have branched out on your own as an independent consultant now. Um, And you doing that has kind of formed the the, the topic of this conversation because it's kind of what you help your 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 client base with so tell us a little bit the company's called rework tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what it is and who you work for well yeah so maybe a little bit different to some consultancies that support um attractions uh i support attractions or leisure operators and tech suppliers basically the main aim is to increase revenue grow their businesses that's the end goal um um, but for attractions or leisure operators it could be procuring new solutions and finding the right partnership um with whatever tech suppliers the, the the requirements for but it also might be helping them with their current partnership and improving it because you know my experience the easy bit is the procurement. It's maintaining the partnership for the years to come, where there's obviously lots of um, areas for improvement and many of the reasons why people jump ship deciding to go and find another supplier 
is because the relationship's gone down the swanee. Mm. And then with suppliers, um, I've been helping them with their sales and marketing strategy, either new suppliers that are coming into this market and want to understand a visitor attractions better and the marketplace and where it stands, um, or where there's, you know, improvements to be made. I think lots of suppliers, everyone's guilty of it. You get in your own headspace, don't you, of you keep on doing sales demos, you keep on doing processes, and just take somebody that has an external view, you know, as a consultant, you're in a perfect position because you get to see loads of attraction, you know, loads of suppliers presenting and doing demonstrations and responding to RFIs and RFPs. So actually going in there and, and reviewing that process for them to improve their sales conversions is part of my offering. So we're going to talk about procurement today. Yeah. Um, and it is a word that I think probably fills suppliers and attractions with dread. Yeah. It's a daunting process. It can be time consuming. It's kind of a necessary evil, isn't it? Like I'm a really realistic supplier in the sense that there's a lot of agencies out there. Well, there, there's a lot of agencies out there and there's a lot of people that will advise you to not don't go through procurement process. Don't do it. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't pitch for stuff. And on one hand, I totally and utterly agree <laughs> because it is painful. And some of the things that make it painful we'll talk about today. Mm. Um, but it unfortunately, it's a, it's a necessary evil in the sectors that we work in. Yeah. It's the process that is followed. And so you kind of have to play the game. Mm. But the process, the procurement process has to be run in the right way. And I think that is that is why I believe that procurement process has broken down quite drastically over the last god knows how many years yeah and i and i think there's when some people some suppliers say i don't get involved in public procurement for example you know it's so labor intensive you know i was involved in one which people name nameless not so long ago and they were using the same kind of procurement processes as when i was involved with a with a supplier maybe like I don't know, must, must be like 10 years ago. Even references to things like fax machines, it's like, God, like you, no one's updating this this process from the government side of it, things. Obviously, that's where they're getting their, their forms. But on the very flip side of that, you might have a private um, attraction ledger operator that I've seen procurement done on like one sheet of A4. You know, that's that's their basis of spending tens of thousands of yeah. pounds on a, a solution yeah and neither makes sense right so we have to no. find a process that works and it uh, so I feel we have to find a process that works and the whole industry adopts that process that's what mm. I think it would be anyway I want to ask you what are the biggest challenges for an attraction when it comes to the procurement process well definitely the I, I don't know about top but the pr- most pressing one where which you get from whatever organization um, um, takes it on is time you know it's very rare that you ever find somebody that's like right I'm going to um, procure a new solution and I'm going to recruit a new member of staff to run that whole process for me like that just doesn't happen and then there's obviously downsides to that too because that person doesn't understand the organization but Time is a massive issue and it's not just for that process. So if the process actually for procurement lasts for three months, for example, and then maybe the implementation 
takes three months. That's six months of somebody's time when they already have a full-time job probably with many other things that come up. And yet that sometimes there's a perception that as soon as the solution goes live, that's it. Mm. it it's fine. We don't need to put any time aside now. Maybe we've got an administrator or somebody that does administrating for the system, putting new tickets on or creating new events or retail items. But the emphasis on time suddenly goes, which I think is all wrong because the partnership should start from the moment somebody says hello all the way through to through the life cycle of that. So you mean that that relationship isn't managed past the point of past the point of the, the solution being implemented, that then correct, the relationship yeah, isn't yeah. managed in, in the correct yeah. way. And I know then the, you know the term partnership gets floated about so much and some um suppliers it might be ticketing but it might be something else entirely some do turn up and action things that make partnerships great others just use that name as a selling point but i think the key thing is that the person that's procuring the organization that's procuring the solution and working with that supplier and the supplier have a 50-50 ratio responsibility for making that partnership work. Mm. And I, I don't know if that is anywhere evidence. I don't see any evidence of, of that within our sector. And I guess that's where I feel that I've got a good, I'm in a good position to see both sides because I'm working with the suppliers to hopefully raise the standards. And I'm, I'm working with a, a leisure operation and attra- attractions. To raise the standards so hopefully although i'm only one person right now <laughs> you know in time that will have some impact yeah okay so biggest challenges for attractions we talked about you mentioned time resource because lack of time and you know you you, you potentially need someone to run this process for you that you don't have yeah. um yeah. and then the challenge of how to get the most out of that relationship once the once the solution has been implemented yeah it doesn't stop there what about because you sit very much in between the attractions and the and the suppliers what are the what do you think are the biggest challenges when it comes to suppliers about the procurement process well I, I would say that they both have similar stresses and the second one I was going to say apart from time is knowledge there is um, maybe a lack of awareness about how much the process of procurement matters to the end result, as in who you're going to choose. And that's about, you know, if a consultant's on board, you're expecting them to have market knowledge. So obviously awareness of the actual sector, but also market knowledge of what te- technology providers are out there and which are suited to that particular client. But also what process works the best mm. to get the best result and I don't think that emphasis is strong enough and I think that also impacts the suppliers so if they they don't have most of the time they don't have any say apart from maybe how they turn up to a demo about the process at all and it it totally impacts them and how they can perform yeah I totally agree and although I'm not so I know a lot of the procurement processes that you are part of are for ticketing and for systems and yeah. or platforms, maybe. Um, and I kind of come at it, we're slightly different in that, you know, we're, yes, it's, it's a digital offering that we have, but it's a website. So it's, it's, it's more of a, 
it's it's not like a, a plug and plug and play kind of kind of no. thing. But I think the biggest challenge that I find is lack of conversation early. Mm. So give you an example. Uh a tender comes in, a brief a brief comes over, looks really exciting, looks absolutely up our street. Read the brief. There's no opportunity for me to have a conversation with them about the brief. I can send questions. I can I can email yeah. questions over. Um, so you know there is a there is a dialogue, but it's not a way to. It's, it's not even about building relationship. If if I'm honest, it's it's about that two way street. Like, can you work? Should you yeah. be finding out early enough if you gel? You yeah. know, is there a relationship there that could be developed? You know, something. Sometimes you can talk to people and you're just totally on different wavelengths, right? No. And so you you know. Are we right for you? Are you right for us? Kind of thing. That that's I think the thing, thing that I find the most frustrating about the process is that complete lack of of, of conversation yeah. at the start of it. And, and like public procurement is particularly difficult when it comes to that because there's this you know a tender portal. You're communicating through that. Um, mm. There's no opportunity to get on a call and discuss anything. Um, and I think that opens up massive issues because there's you know, I, I wrote. Uh, blog post an article recently about um, I can't even say the word ambiguity it's really a hard word to say um <laughs> because uh when you're re- relying on the written word you read into things mm. whereas actually if you just get on a call and say right these suppliers you don't need to name names who who ask what questions but these are the answers to all those the questions and somebody then might say to you Oh, that's great because that makes that much clearer. Can I ha- ask another question? And it's just there, you know, you clarify, clarify everything exactly. um, really well, whereas you wouldn't be able to do that so easily back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, exactly that point. And then the other one is open tenders. I've talked a lot about this, actually. So we, um, Sophie Ballinger from Eureka came on, um, mm-hmm. I think, at uh, I think last season, actually, to season three. Um, and we had a good talk about it. So we, we, Eureka are a client of ours. That's, that's public knowledge. Mm-hmm. When we first started working with them, we were lucky enough to have eyes on a tender that had been sent out and it was a public tender. Um, they put it out to, they did send it to a few people, but it, you know, any, anyone could find this tender and, and potentially put in a proposal for it. And that's what happened. So they had 40, 40 tenders come back in you know 40 proposals for their brief this is a weird one in that we were one of those 40 we'd been up to to meet to meet Eureka we'd been up to see them and ask questions they were really kind they gave us they they gave everybody that wanted time with them time whether that was on the phone Uh or in person so it was a really good process we we got shortlisted and we won that tender right so in one hand I can't knock that process because we had the opportunity to work with an incredible client that we still work with today they're amazing However, I questioned Sophie and said, would you do this massive open tender again? Because surely, respectfully, you have to read 40 briefs, 40 40 responses that come back, right, and evaluate them. That's a shitload Mm -hmm. of work. Yeah. Would it be better to do your research first, pick like three or four that you think are a really good fit on paper for you, do a little bit of groundwork, and then just send it to those? Yeah. Well, she she was really torn because she was like, yes, on one hand. Yeah, that would have been sensible, but then they wouldn't have found us through that process. No. So it's and I, and that's why I kind of raise it as I'm really torn about this because we wouldn't have got that opportunity if it hadn't been an open tender. But also, 
does it work I don't know if it works no I know and, and like I I honestly believe that if you rush the process even though you say you short time you're only going to cause yourself more grief and you're investing in in a, a system that isn't like a couple of hundred quid you know it's and you you really want to be with them. I know technology is moving faster. And I could argue for the fact that these old legacy systems now where they have the, you know, oh, well, we've been with working with this client for 15, 20 years. Well, have you been doing a really great job or, the, or is it just too much of a pain mm. to, to change because it is so ingrained in your organization? Whereas obviously all the cloud-based solutions are much easier to swap and change over. Anyway, that's a side topic. Um I think that if people can do a step-by-step process, whether you call it RFI or RFP, whatever, somebody said to me last year, Sarah, I just don't have time to sit in. These suppliers want me um, to sit in on a demo for like two, two and a half hours. And I was like, yeah, that's quite reasonable. If you can't put time aside, and that means changing how your organization is for weeks or months, whatever, to give you some support or you bring in somebody that's going to help you through that process you do need to put in time otherwise you're going to be making the wrong decision yeah I totally agree that two and a half hours seems quite insignificant in the grand yeah. scheme of yeah. things that you're going to spend like you know potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds on this system over the years yeah. you know that two, two and a half hours you kind of really need to know if it will do what it says it does yeah. for you yeah <laughs> So okay. like for people that don't really understand the market and how massive it is, and even though whenever I talk to people about that aren't in our industry and I tell them what rework does, they're like, wow, that's a niche, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it's amazing how we've got a niche of ticketing. And when I say ticketing, this obviously gets confusing sometimes because ticketing does encompass membership. I call it retail catering, mm-hmm. because some organisations that are smaller – want a system that they might call it a ticketing CRM system, but it does all, you know, everything. If you went up a scale and they might be looking at a best breed solution, which is, you know, got higher functionality in ticketing, but they don't have catering or, you know, retail, et cetera. And they might integrate to another best of breed solution. But there's uh, the, the market review I did earlier on this year for a global entertainment um, organization had 25 ticketing suppliers to the visitor attraction sector so with somebody that has no knowledge how do you work out where that 24 are going to be shortlisted to the yeah. first stage let alone second stage third yeah. stage and you might yeah. be missing out on an amazing supplier if you don't because you don't know how to evaluate from yeah. between them yeah, yeah i hadn't thought about that that's a really hugely daunting process and probably why people should use a consultant Sarah yeah yeah, um, yeah. but how do you see so we talked a bit about that partnership piece how do you evaluate what a good partnership is I, I briefly touched on it about the fact that people think about partnerships as the ongoing process but it starts at the very very point of contact so whether that's me as a consultant doing a you know a Q&A with some suppliers I'm acting on behalf of that client at the end of the day so it's how professional I am and whether I'm asking the right questions but also a mutual level of respect and understanding between the client and the supplier it's not oh you're a supplier 
it's you know we turn up together we're in this together we as attractions operators or leisure operators understand some of the stresses that suppliers have to go through and suppliers also understand the stresses that and the challenges that the operator has to go through because without being open and honest about your businesses how are you going to be able to work together yeah it's a good point isn't it you have to understand the intricacies of each other's businesses and we probably don't do that enough actually I think we've we, I mean, there's been times in the past where we haven't asked enough of the right questions. So, you know, being brutally honest, I'm sure there's plenty of suppliers out there that have done exactly the same as us. And we haven't understood the intricacies as well as we should have. So we do make sure that's a focus now. Mm. Um, because if we don't, we can't build the solution that works for them and works for the well, works for the level of understanding they have of certain technologies or just the level of resource that they have. Like this yeah. thing that we're going to build build for them. Do they actually have the internal capability to, to to work with it? You know, that's that's a question you need to ask. So, but what I guess we don't often do is flip that on its head. So we as suppliers probably don't go, well, look, this is our team. This is our capabilities. We also have X amount of suppliers. And this is how our, you know, we mm-hmm. probably don't go into the level of, of detail that we need to about how we operate so that the, uh, the, the attractions can understand maybe some of our limitations as well yeah exactly and I think like once a solution goes live you know if you're talking at that kind of handover period between implementing and then going live suppliers also need to discuss and make it you know it's it's vitally important for them to make this partnership work if they don't they'll be losing that contract so how can you put something in place and it's not just saying we're we do account meetings whenever you feel like it what actual credentials can you put there evaluation processes to say whether the partnership is working and i know that suppliers issue slas but then their slas like you know is the system down <laughs> you know those kind of things and that's not really about the partnership that's about the solution actually working like you're being paid you know, on a service contract. Yeah. So you mentioned SLAs, I'm laughing because one of my other bugbears is actually sometimes it's not just a part. So for instance, we work with attractions. We have an, a, part, a partnership with the attraction, but also we need an, a, part, a partnership with um, with whatever ticketing solution they have, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we're controlling the website that their ticketing solution is attached to and and to an, a certain extent, vice versa, if it's API driven. Um so the ticket we we'll have our SLAs. Ticketing provider will have their SLAs. We don't know what they mean. <laughs> you know, we we get given. You know, we, I you know I can again yeah. name no names, but there's you know we get given a oh well this is this is in, it's with support and it's an SLA level of XYP and we're like yeah. great. What does that mean? Are you gonna? When do we get a when do we get a reply then? Because the client's coming to us. There's an issue. What, are we gonna get a reply in an hour? Or is that a 16 hour? I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's like what define what those SLAs are and actually share them with everybody. With everyone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you, if you took the example of like, um, say it wasn't a all in one ticketing solution, and it was best to breathe. And there was a ticketing supplier, a retail supplier, and an F&B supplier. You would want to know that all of those three know which, how they all operate. Yes. 
And uh, arguably, one of the account meetings that you have them, so if you say, for instance, had once a quarter account meetings, they all should be there together. You know, that that not individual hearsay, or it's yeah. that person's fault, that person's fault, blah, blah, blah. You know, a, a working group as, as such. I totally agree. This came up on a panel discussion at the Ticketing Professionals Conference um, a few weeks ago, didn't it, about who's in control of that user journey when it comes mm. to ticketing and websites. And and that was one thing that we kept saying is actually it's not about them and us. We all need to work together, together. for the best solution for the client. And mm. that does mean all speaking and all having those open conversations about stuff. Stuff goes wrong. It's always going to go yeah. wrong. But, yeah. you know, it's not about who's at fault here. It's about how do we rectify it and how do we make it not happen again? And you can't do that unless you've got all the right people in the room no. at the same time. And if, you know, like I uh, go back to my days at O'Neill's, we used to have a mystery shopper scheme and it used to put on everyone on edge. Like, is that the person that's a mystery shopper? And it's like a snapshot of your business, wasn't it? It's like one visit every quarter and then suddenly you're given like this result. And it's like, well, that's not really fair because, you know, most of the time it's being run really well. Why have I got, you know, 80% not 95 or whatever? But if there was something in, in place that you could see over a period of time, not like, oh, the ticketing supplier isn't doing great this week. You know, every quarter you could sit down and say, here's the benchmarks. What what are we doing well? What what is supply doing well? What is the attraction doing well? You know, are they getting the responses back to me quick quickly enough? If they, you know, if if a supplier's got an issue, if they if an attraction's got an issue with the system and they've reported it to support, for example, but they haven't been clear about what the issue is, then it causes frustration for the supplier because it's like emails back and forth or help desks. Um, portals you know with massive long lists of questions so it does take the attraction also to turn up and give the right information for that supplier to investigate the issue properly yes that is a very good point actually and that I know can be a challenge because attractions teams are often quite small Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes ticketing can sit with marketing sometimes ticketing can sit with visitor experience operations and those teams are pulled here there and everywhere so Mm -hmm. yeah that's a very good point is that they they, there's an element of more triaging needs to be done internally before it goes out to the ticketing or the web a web agency and and that comes down to good account management right yeah a hundred percent and how you you know obviously there's used to be a high turnover of staff now at the moment that the recruitment is really hard for most attractions out there how do you with your supplier record issues report back issues to management make sure the member of staff that's actually using this the system on the front desk is accountable to x y and z that, that actually manages the partnership so the structure within your organization as an attraction really matters in terms of how the partnership works. Because if you've got loads of casual staff on a Saturday and Sunday and the manage, manager that manages the partnership doesn't work Saturday and Sunday, something needs to be in place yeah. for that communication to be clear and for the supplier to get the right information and therefore investigate and get back to the person, you know, and the organization as quickly as possible. So it is like, I just think it's a 50-50 
level of responsibility. We've always thought this kind of, it feels like suppliers are down here somewhere and it's the client, you're up here. Just because one's paying for the other. Yeah, no, I get I get that. And I've felt that in some in some circumstances. It's good to highlight that. Mm. Okay, a few more questions. What would be your two top tips for attractions when it comes to the procurement process? Oh definitely would be to if you're if you want to get advice, and this should be for any consultant out there too, is that even if you don't think you need, because you've got great team to manage the procurement process get some external advice early even if it's just like pay for one day's consultancy in the grand scheme of things that's going to be like a tiny pinprick in the big budget and it might allow you to go if you started the project say for instance in 2022 and thought i need a new system but i can't afford it till 2023 have the conversation with the consultant early they will should be able to give you an indication of timelines. So therefore, then you can work back and know when you've got to start the process because no one ever, ever over, everyone always underestimates how quickly time goes, you know, holiday, absence. Then you've got to rely on getting all the suppliers ducks in a row in terms of organizing demos and presentations. So I would say get some engagement early on, even if you don't want to engage with that consultant for the whole procurement process be key. Um, Yeah. Um, And then people within your organization, who is going to help you because you can't do it all on your own, you know, through the procurement process, you're going to be sick on holiday. You've got a million other projects to go. There's, there needs to be more than one person, and in the, uh, you know, ideally, it would be a project team, people different different departments, but somebody that is accountable to take that support and to take it forwards. So once the system goes live, it's not just some part time person that's occasionally mm-hmm. setting up tickets. Who's who's managing the system, but importantly, who's actually managing the partnership? Yeah. Great tips. Uh, same question for suppliers. What do you? What would be your two top tips for suppliers going through the process? I think in terms of procurement, listen to the brief and respond to the brief. Don't just put out some blanket template response. People want to know what you have done in real terms. So if if questions are asked, give them an actual response based upon a case study. You know, I we increase sales by X to X or so that when the references come up, you can go to that client and say. They're they're saying that they've helped you increase sales by X. And they're like, yeah, they did. The previous system was shocking and our relationship is really great now. Because anyone can say, say, airy fairy sales waffle, as I call it, you know, give give the potential client some facts what where you've actually helped yeah and i know that's really hard because you'll have to go to your clients and you know dig a bit deeper but even if you can got two examples that's better than just coming up with sales waffle in, in my opinion and i would say get somebody to review your processes when, when i started working for tour in that consultancy period i reviewed all of the tender processes that were going on in the organization. And in the, in the end, I obviously, I started working, so I had to put my 
my words into practice. But I think getting somebody to look at it from an outside perspective, sitting in on some demo demonstrations and seeing it from a new perspective always helps. And I'd probably say that, to be honest with you, for any organization. Occasionally, it, it, it sometimes takes a new person starting, doesn't it, to go, why are we doing it this way? Or Yeah, because we've always done it that way. Yeah. Can't well, we do it a different way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah, I like that. And you probably, to be fair, you probably answered my last question is, is why, why is it important to work with a consultant? You answered an element of that briefly in the, you know, you it, get an outside pair of hands, get an outside, get an outside view, sorry, on, on what you're doing. Um, also, I guess, you know, you've got knowledge of systems that they may not be aware of so you're keeping up to date with the current trends and the current things that are happening mm-hmm. in the industry what else would you say was 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 a reason for working with a consultant many people will think i can't afford a consultant so mm-hmm. they see it as a cost to the project whereas i and i know people will say well of course you're going to say this because you're a consultant but i've always thought consultancy and experts impartial advice is a cost saving because it's filling the gaps that you don't have like you know even that global entertainment company didn't have ticketing expertise to be able to do a market review they identified that in their business so actually if they had moved forwards without putting that step and getting that independent person in involved they wouldn't have been able to move forwards with clarity and reassurance that they're making the right decision yes and those decisions end up with lengthy contract terms unpicking yeah yeah, a mess which I'm sure everyone at home is nodding going oh god I've been there yeah for sure well they make the decision that actually they don't have the time capacity or the budget to go ahead with the project anyway so there is there is those there's that to consider too isn't there yeah offer um what we call a discovery uh session you know discovery workshop which could be it's it's exactly what you were saying about you know getting someone in just to do a day or two's consultancy with you to give you an overview of where you're at and what actually would be the right steps to move forward with and that's kind Mm. of what what we do as well um and it's a really good way of evaluating actually can you do this project at this point yeah do you need to do it now do you need to put this on hold for six months do you need an ex person in do you need this person to yeah. be in the role before you go ahead with this project so that's invaluable or, or do you even need to do it at all because mm. I think sometimes there's a tendency to have blinkers on but not because anyone's fault but because you've just been dealing with the day-to-day grind and actually has anyone tried to make this partnership work you know it yeah you know, I know it should be suppliers. So this is a shout out to all suppliers there. Don't sit back on your laurels with contracts. I heard somebody say a while ago, um, somebody that I met at a conference, they were like, oh, it's great. I haven't had to deal with my supplier for, for weeks, months now or something, ages. And I was like, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing that you haven't heard from your partner, ticketing partner for such a long time? Yes, it means the system's not down or whatever, but surely... There should be more engagement. Are you getting the most out of the system to engage with your customers and make you more money? Yeah. That to me says that that isn't a healthy relationship, though. That sense that I get from that is that you're hearing from them because stuff was going wrong. Yeah. I'm not hearing from them. So nothing's going wrong, but that's still not right. No. 
you should be no. trying to engage and improve and yeah yeah, yeah. and I, and i think this sort of sits outside procurement but one thing leads to another is that i my biggest piece of advice and i said this at the ticketing business forum the other week when i was asked that um suppliers need to and this whether whether it's ticketing or whatever is is to really target decide which part of the market they are targeting um and as i call it pick a lane because I honestly don't believe you're trying to be everything to everyone is going to service the industry well. Um, your current clients will soon be left behind because they're not important enough anymore because another group is. Do you really have a big enough development team, you know, to service all these requirements from all stretches of, of our, our sector? And it doesn't help when then when you're trying to shortlist because all this supplier says that everything to everyone like how does that help anyone try and push you know if you want to I don't know develop your membership area is that important to that supplier in terms of their roadmap yeah so niche niche within a niche Sarah that's mm. what they say yeah. isn't it niche within the niche well, there's, a, there's enough have. suppliers out there you know 24 plus that actually everyone could have a niche and everyone could be doing it really well and there wouldn't be any need for all of that there. Yeah, good <laughs> advice and we'd only need to send out RFPs to maybe four of them. Yeah. All yeah. 24. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Sarah. I could talk about this topic all day long. I think, um, as, you, as you're well aware, I've got lots to add yeah. to this conversation. But um, I would like to know what book you'd like to share with our listeners. Ah, so for those of you that haven't probably seen on LinkedIn, I, um, I'm also a life coach. And it feeds quite into a lot into consulting um, about how I ask my clients questions. And I love this book. It's all about time. It's called 4,000 Weeks. And it's about at the average we have this time on, on the planet wow. and how we should use the time. And what I love about it is it's like lots of times sort of management books always like they make you try and let's eat out every minute and Productivity. Hustle harder. <laughs> I feel I'm like exhausted listening to, <laughs> to Whereas this really takes quite a reflective view of like what's important to you and take a step back. And I think we can all learn massive lessons from that in this ever fast paced world that we live in. So yeah, 4,000 weeks would be my recommendation. Great book. Um, I like that. That's not been on the podcast either. I think I might go and check that out, Sarah. I'm not going to lie. Hectic is the word that I would describe at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Hectic. And I could do with taking a bit of a step back and evaluating how I spend a lot time. of my time. So yeah. I'll, I'll add that to my list. Um, <laughs> listeners, if you want to win, I'll be in with the chance of winning a copy of that book. If you head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this podcast announcement uh, with the words, I want Sarah's book then you might just win it. Who knows? You might get lucky. Um, so it's been lovely to chat. Thank you. Ah, oh, lovely to have me on. Sure, I will see you at an industry event very soon because we always bump into each other. Mm-hmm. And it's always a pleasure. Yep. But yeah, thanks for coming on and sharing about the procurement process. We will link out to all of Sarah's contact details and her website in the show notes. So if you do want to get in touch for a chat, book that day of consultancy, go ahead and do it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. 
Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.